Alright, we're going to begin our time together in God's Word today, in Colossians chapter 3. But before we do that, we're going to pray together. We're going to ask the Lord to help us and to meet with us over these words. And so let's pray. Father, we come this morning in Jesus' name. And Lord, we're a needy people. Tremendously needy, Lord. We believe Your words to us that we can't do anything apart from You. Lord, we long to worship You. You're everything to us. We magnify Your saving work in our life that You are the Christ who died for our sins and washed all our sins away, Lord. Who else could we love besides You? Who else could we live for besides You? Where else could we go besides You, Lord Jesus? And so we long to love You more. We long to worship You more and more, Lord. And so we ask You to visit us as a local church today with Your power that You would make Your words effective in our life today, Lord. And so we ask that You would be gracious to us and that You would be good to us and merciful to us, Lord, and that You would carve out a moment where we meditate on Your Word. God, and I pray specifically as we cover this broad passage that You would apply it very personally to us all across this room. Christ, that You would speak to us. Holy Spirit, we know that You love to exalt the Lord Jesus and we ask You to do that. In every heart, in every mind today, Lord, be faithful. Be good to us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to begin by reading our passage together. We're going to cover the first two verses. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If then... You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. This is God's word to this local church this morning. Simple words, but beautiful words. We're going to dive into them together. Before we begin to unpack Colossians chapter 3 verse 1, I want you to notice just a few things. This is more introductory as we head into our passage. If you've ever read the the book of Colossians, you know that, that in a lot of ways the verses that we just read, that they're a pivot. This is a transition in this letter. And if you've been here the past few weeks... At Grace Community Church, you know that we've had a heavy dose the past few weeks of the Apostle Paul warning this local church and us about embracing uh, counterfeit versions. I think that's a good example, a good, a good description. Counterfeit versions of the Christian life. He's came back to this again and again. These philosophies, this legalism. Uh, super spiritual distractions, asceticism, going after man-made religion. So he's been going at this for, for several weeks, warning about counterfeit 
versions of the Christian life. We're not going to say much about that because we've been preaching about that for several weeks. But I do want to highlight one thing about those counterfeit versions that we left off at the end of chapter 2. In verse 23, possibly this is the most important thing for you to know about those counterfeit versions of the Christian life. Listen. In verse 23, we are told that these counterfeit versions of the Christian life are, quote, of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So the last thing the Apostle Paul told us about these distractions, these counterfeit versions, is they're completely powerless. They have no power. They cannot move you forward in godliness. They can't produce true and lasting holiness in your life. They're powerless. They're of no value. Not even a little bit. They don't get a 5 on a 0 to 10 scale. They don't even get a 1. They get a 0. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so we have been warned in, in many ways that there is a way for us to go about our pursuit of Christ and our living the Christian life that's busy, busy, busy with activity. Okay, And you see that in these distractions. And also... Got, got beliefs popping out the ears. They're believing things. They're going after doctrine. They got some zeal. They're busy, busy, busy. Okay? They think the Bible teaches this. Think the Bible teaches that. They're busy, busy, busy. But the only problem is they're running around in circles, but they're not going anywhere. That's the warning okay, that we have been given the past several weeks. That there is a real deception uh, in front of us and it's deceptive because it can look like you're going somewhere. It can look like you're moving forward in the Christian life. But in all reality, you're going nowhere. No value. It yields no results. Okay? And so what we've been told is that counterfeit Christianity is powerless. Powerless. Now, I hope, my hopes and my prayers for this local church is that every member of this church has been impacted by these warnings, that you have had your attention arrested by these warnings and these distractions in Colossians. Because listen, brothers and sisters, this, this, the stakes of you being distracted by these things, the stakes are, are nothing less than you wasting your life. Okay? Listen. That's exactly what it means. When you give your life to powerless things, that can't do anything for you. Can't move you forward in godliness a millimeter. You give your life to those things. Then on the final day, if you're deceived in that way, then on the final day, what is true of you? You're busy, busy, busy. Talking about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But you're not moving forward at all. You have wasted your life. And so that's what counterfeit versions of the Christian life, that's what they do. That's what they do. They waste our life. Okay? So over and over, over and over, he's been saying, don't do that. Don't fall for this stuff. Okay? And we come to chapter 3, verse 1, and we have a massive transition. Because a lot of the corrective part of this letter is now behind us, and Paul is transitioning from 
Don't do this. Don't go after this. Watch out for this stuff to do this instead. Okay? This is a transition to the positive. And so we've been warned about the counterfeits. And then he, he puts a picture out in front of us. This is authenticity. This is what the real thing looks like. And in contrast to those counterfeit, powerless versions, this one's full of power. This one moves you forward in godliness. This is why in verse 5 he starts talking about putting sin in a coffin in verse 5. That's why he start, starts talking about in verse 12 of putting on the, the virtues and the likeness of Jesus Christ. This is about moving forward in godliness. This is the real thing. Okay? So we're transitioning at this point to authentic Christianity. Now, just from staying high up, the first thing we know the first thing we know when he begins to shove this picture forward of the authentic Christian life is that it is in stark contrast to the counterfeits in, in this sense. It is Christocentric. It is all about Jesus. The authentic Christian life is obsessed with the Lord Jesus Christ. Those counterfeits are going after shadows instead of substance. They're not holding fast to the head. But the authentic version begins and ends with the Lord Jesus. He's everything. He's everything. And so in a lot of ways, what He's showing us in these first two verses is the supremacy of Christ in the Christian life. Now, that ought to ring some bells for you. Because that word has been talked about quite a bit in Colossians. This, this idea of the supremacy of Jesus. And so I want you to know that in a lot of ways, this entire letter has been moving towards these verses. So you think about this. Why is Jesus exalted far above every created thing in chapter 1? Why is He Presented as the Lord of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Made everything for Himself. Why did the pen go to the paper and scribe those words? He's the supreme one. He has supremacy in all of creation. And in a lot of ways, it's, it's, it's for this reason. Because we're, he's, he's moving towards this. He's moving towards chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. And so the letter of Colossians came off the pen of the Apostle Paul to secure the supremacy of Christ in the lives of these Christians. Okay? That's the main aim of the letter. The main point exalts Jesus in all things, but the main aim is that Jesus would be the supreme one in your life without rival, far above everything else, that He would be your obsession, that He would dominate your entire life beginning to end. This is the main aim of Colossians. And so we're, we're studying Colossians as a local church. It's a Grace Community Church. How do we know if we have received these words as the Holy Spirit intended us? How do we know if we have truly learned the message of Colossians? And this is how we know when Jesus reigns supreme in your life, above everything else, you got the message of Colossians. Okay? Even if you can't 
dot every I, cross every T, explain every detail. You got it. You got it. Your life is lining up with the reason that this letter was penned. And so this is, this is what we're going towards. Everything has been moving towards this. And then we land on these commandments to seek the things above, to set our mind on the things above. And so in a lot of ways, that's, that's what's at stake. What's at stake is us truly learning the reason for this letter that we're studying together. So I want us to lean in and learn this text well. Okay, You learn this well and you are, have been equipped by God to live your life well and not waste your life. This is why you exist. If you don't learn this text well and, and the message of Colossians well, the warning of Colossians is that you will not move forward. You will waste your entire life. And so this is how God designed it to function, the Christian life. He designed the Christian life to function with Jesus having supremacy in your life. And the other side of that is also true, that the Christian life, if Jesus is given any other place in your life besides absolute supremacy, then the Christian life begins to malfunction because it's not meant to function like that. It only functions one way when Christ is king and sovereign and supreme over all. So this is what we're going for. And I want to begin with these words in verse 1. If then, if then you have been raised with Christ. And this, is, this is better translated because it's written to the church. This is not questioning the conversion of these believers be better for us to read that since you have been raised with Christ. So I want you to think about that little phrase. Since you have been raised with Christ. That phrase is very similar. If you back up just a couple of verses. Colossians chapter 2 verse 20. It's very similar to this phrase. If with Christ you die. And so in a lot of ways, those go together. If with Christ you died, if you have been raised with Christ. And that's not even the only time that this, that this type language has showed up in the letter of Colossians. Go back a little bit further to chapter 2 verse 12 and we have this phrase. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were raised with Him through faith. And so this is a theme running through this letter that we died with Christ as, as believers, as Christians. We died with Christ and we were raised with Christ. And so I just want to take two simple points from that phrase. And that phrase tells us something happened to Christ. Christ died. If we died with Him, that means He died. If we were raised with Him, that means He was raised. And so the phrase tells us that something happened happened to Christ. And then that very same phrase tells us that something happened to every Christian. Both Christ and every single believer have experienced a death and a resurrection. A death and a resurrection. Now, we're going to cover that together. But here's where we're going to start. We're going to start this morning as a reminder to you as believers, let this serve as a glorious reminder to you 
of your Savior. And we're going to be reminded that something happened to Jesus. And this is the most foundational thing because there's not a gospel unless something happened to Jesus. The things that happened to Christ are the very core of the Christian gospel. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You take that away, and every single one of us are dead in our sins. There is no gospel. There is no salvation. And so we're camping out on this verse. Something happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to begin with His death. Our, our, our beginning phrase says, If Christ was raised, that presupposes something happened. He was dead first, and then He was raised. And so, let's zone in on... On, on this idea of Christ, Christ died. Christ died. And I want you to fight against hearing that with a tremendous amount of familiarity. A cold familiarity. And I want us to fight to be reminded of this truth this morning as a shocking reality. That Christ died. Christ died. Okay? Here's what I mean. I want us to take a, take a little, little journey just deeper and deeper into this truth. And so let's begin here. Who is Christ? Who is Jesus? And at the very base level, we know that Jesus was a Jewish carpenter. That's who He was. He was a Jewish carpenter from this little obscure Israeli town called Nazareth. So, here's what we're saying about Him. Christ was a man. Christ was a real human being. He was a real man with a real family, a real job, and a real life. Okay? Carpenter from Nazareth. And when we say something like, that Christ died, that surprises nobody. Okay? If that's all that Jesus is, there's nothing shocking about that. Nothing surprising about that. In fact, we expect people like that to die. Carpenters from Nazareth to die. That's what we expect to happen. There's nothing shocking about it at all. But that's not the, that's, that's not the only truth of the Christ of Scripture. And so unless you have this grid, this glorious grid, you will not see the death of Jesus as absolutely mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. Colossians has told us that Jesus is more than a real historical man. Look back in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. These words are describing this Jewish carpenter. Listen close. By Him all things were created. Think about that. Maybe we have some really ingenuitive brothers and sisters in the room and you're very creative maybe you own a little business you make a few things look at what it said about the man by him all things were created that text goes on to say this 
Things visible, things invisible. He made it all. Things in heaven and things on earth. He made it all. Every angel and every molecule in all of God's creation. That humble carpenter of Nazareth is the creator of the ends of the earth. So, so when we say Christ died, this is the Christ that we're talking about. Not, not this merely human man, but this exalted God-man. And this truth about Jesus, it blows our mind. Because it exposes us to His holiness. In the sense that there is literally none like Him. Think of somebody else or anything else you know that has both of these attributes. Carpenter from Nazareth, creator of the ends of the earth. He is fully human and fully divine at the same time. He is Jesus Christ, the God-man. No one like Him. Completely unique. No one stands beside Him. And so you think about this. This is glorious. This is glorious. Just wrapping your mind around the two natures of Jesus Christ is absolutely glorious. He is at the same time creator and creation. Eternal deity. His eternal deity has existed from all eternity. He has always been God the eternal son. And yet, that same person, Jesus Christ, had this humanity that was knit together and made in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And God the Eternal Son became God the Incarnate Son. This is Jesus Christ, the God-man. Fully God and fully man. There is no one like Jesus. So you think about this. The same one. The same one. That same carpenter. And you just picture in there. Walking down these dusty roads in Israel. People know his name. Oh, that's Jesus. That's the carpenter's son. And they see him walking down the street. There's dust flying off of his sandals. And at the same time, this is true. That when that man takes those steps down those roads, the Creator Himself is walking among His creation. This is who Jesus is. When that humble carpenter is in his wood shop making furniture, that's the same one who was in the beginning creating entire galaxies by His spoken Word. He is the God-man. The Christ who is the supreme over all, over every other created thing. This is who Jesus is. So listen, the next transition ought to be mind-blowing. It, 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 it ought to scramble your brains to try to even understand this. Look just a few verses down, Colossians chapter 1, and we have these words. Just really simple. We have these words. So you think about everything you've been told about Him in the letter of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 verse 20. Boom! The blood of His cross. The blood of His cross. 
And so the Christ that Colossians is presenting to us is not this humble carpenter dying on a Roman cross. That's not who is presented to us. Who is presented to us is the Lord, the reigning Lord of all the universe, the one who made all things, and then mind-blowing, mind-blowing, the blood of His cross. That glorious incarnate life ended on this bloody Roman cross. Absolutely mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. Now you think about this. When you see the Lord Jesus for who He is as presented in Holy Scripture, the only logical thing that makes sense when the God-man invaded His creation was every created being prostrate before the carpenter of Nazareth, praising His holy name, singing hallelujah to His holy name, saying, hail Him as King of all. That's the only thing that makes sense. He made everything that is for Himself. It's mind-blowing. Because what actually happens is not hail Him King of all. Humanity, rebellious humanity, screams out, Hammer Him to the cross. This man will not reign over us. It's mind-blowing. It's shocking. Christ wasn't supposed to die. Christ was supposed to be worshipped shore to shore. Shocking. Mind-blowing. That this incarnate life is ending on a bloody cross. Now... What does this death show us? What are, we, what are we supposed to take away from the God-man bleeding out on His cross? And I'll just mention two things. And the first is this. That this death of the God-man on the cross is a reminder and evidence for every one of us of our great sinfulness before God. So you think about this. The murder of Jesus Christ is the worst sin that has ever been committed in all of human history times 10 million. This is the murdering of the incarnate, perfect, innocent Son of God. You owe Him worship and you drove spikes through His hand and He bled out on His cross. It is the worst act of human sin in all of history. So the cross shows us that. It reminds us of that. Look how nasty we are. Look how, look how rebellious we are. We killed the Son of God. So that's what that's intended to remind us of. Intended to show us. And we don't need to comfort ourselves with thoughts that we are far removed from that crucifixion. That, that you know what? I'm not the one who drove those spikes in Jesus' hand. That shouldn't comfort us at all. Okay? And here's why. Because the Bible teaches us that the same sinful human nature that caused those rebellious ones to hammer Him to the cross dwells in every single one of us without exception. So all across the room, I know most of your names, but I don't know everybody in here, but I know this about everybody in here. 
that every single one of us are rebellious before God. We are guilty before God. And we are deserving of God's holy wrath because of our great sinfulness. And the cross shows us that. If you've ever had trouble identifying human sin and, and, and the wickedness of human sin, look at the cross. Look at the Son of God being murdered. This is the greatest display of wickedness in all of human history. So the cross shows us human sin, but it also shows us the grace of God. Human sin and the grace of God. And here's what I mean by that. There ought to be some type of thought creeping across your mind that sounds something like this. Who in the world could kill the God-man? Not in the sense of who could be that wicked, but in the sense of who could be that powerful? Who could take the King of everlasting glory? Who could take the One who made all things, who has all power, and lay Him in the grave? Who could kill the God-man? And as you linger on that question, the only answer to that question is the only type of death that Jesus Christ could have experienced is a voluntary death. Something more is at play than sinful man was so mean to Jesus and they killed Jesus. Something else is at play that the Son of God has voluntarily, graciously, grace from eternity past, He's laid down His life for sinners. And so the Gospels are very, very clear on this point. In fact, Jesus tells us this in John 10. He tells us explicitly, I lay my life down. You don't take it from Him. He, no one take, took Jesus' life from Him. He laid it down of His own accord. And even the night before His crucifixion, He looks on sinful humanity and He reminds us, that at any moment the Lord Jesus could have called 12 legions of angels and stopped it all in a millisecond. So as we think about the death of Jesus Christ, we misunderstand it when we think, poor Jesus, poor helpless Jesus. That's not what's happening here. He is voluntarily choosing to lay His life down. Why? He is becoming... That John 1.29, He's becoming that Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so the cross of Christ shows us the grace of God. Jesus dies for us as a substitute bearing our punishment. He's voluntarily taking our penalty. So, let's pause here for a moment. Let's get a few things just really clear. I want to speak to every person. Okay? The grace of God is not something broad that you don't need to understand that it's something broad that everything kind that God does is grace. That, that's not completely wrong. Okay? But I want to drive this even sharper that the grace of God is, is shown to us at the cross of Jesus Christ. The grace of God is the message of the cross. You understand this? This is the only 
extension of saving grace to all humanity. This is it. Okay? This is it. There is no saving grace found anywhere else in all of God's creation besides this glorious God-man bleeding out on His cross. And so I want to say this. I want to just briefly, I want to address everyone here this morning. And I want to tell you that this offer of the grace of God and the message of the cross is for every single one of you. So listen closely. If you are here today and you are freely confessing that you are a sinful man or woman, that you are a sinner, that you need cleansing, that you need to be forgiven, that you need your record of debt removed from you, I am offering you the grace of God, the message of the cross. And my encouragement to you, if that's you, then my I invite every single person that that's true of to trust in the Christ that was slaughtered on His cross. Don't look anywhere else. Don't look anywhere else. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Don't look anywhere else than the cross of Jesus. Don't look at your works. Don't look at what your mama told you. Look at Christ crucified. And my warning to you, that's my invitation for every single one of you. And my warning to you is this. If you look away from this, and if you look to something else, you will certainly wake up in hell forever. This is it. This is it. The Son of God did not invade this world, take on a human body, and have that body hammered to a cross, bleed out on the cross, taking our sin and our punishment for you to look for some, somewhere else for salvation. This is exclusive. It's nowhere else. God had one Son, and there is one way to be forgiven of sin. Don't look anywhere else than the cross of Christ. So the cross, it reminds us of the grace of God. The grace of God. Every single one of us have to respond to what Jesus has done. Every single one of us must respond to the God-man crucified on the cross. And my encouragement is for you to hear this personal that He came for sinful men and women just like you. Just like you. Not the person in front of you. Not the person to the side of you. You. Not the person who's really religious. This is good news for you. Every single one of you. And so respond to the Lord Jesus. Respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, maybe somebody's asking this question. How do we know that this thing, I've heard this my whole life. How do we know that this thing about salvation through Jesus Christ is not a big hoax? How do we know that that bloody you know, thing that just happened on the cross, how do we know that that really pays for our sin? And with that, we transition into the next thing that happened to Christ. And, and, and many of you know this. The gospel does not end with a bloody cross. It ends with an empty tomb. The Lord Jesus Christ conquered death. He was resurrected 
from the grave. He swallowed death. He overpowered it. He is the living, reigning Lord. He's not the history channel. Jesus. That looking for His body, looking for His shroud, looking for His tomb. Find the body of Jesus. That's not Him. It'll never happen. Body of Jesus came flying out of the empty tomb. Tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. Jesus is resurrected and ascended to heaven and sitting on heaven's throne right now. This is the Christ of Christianity. Now, ask yourself this. What does the resurrection mean? What are we supposed to understand by Christ coming out of the tomb? And I'll mention two things just very quickly. It tells us that this is not a joke. This is not one option, one religious option among many. This is not try Jesus and see how this works for you. And try something else if it doesn't. He is the resurrected Lord. This is not a hoax. That He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the exclusive Savior of sinners. The next thing the resurrection tells us is that that sacrifice for sin that He paid on His bloody cross, guess what happened to that sacrifice? God accepted it. How do we know that? Because Christ was raised from the dead. God accepted that perfect payment for sin. The sacrifice that Jesus gave for our sins was perfect and accepted and it fully satisfied God. The resurrection reminds us that proves it. It proves it. It hammers down all that unbelief of could the death of Christ really forgive me for every sin that I've ever committed? Of course it can. The Son of God came out of the tomb. God accepted His, His sacrifice, His payment for sin. Now, I want to transition to the next thing we see that happens in this passage. This is what happened to Jesus. Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ rose. This is the Christian gospel. Every single person who responds to that gospel with repentance and faith, something happened to you too. And the passage tells us that just like Jesus was crucified and resurrected, Every Christian has died and been raised with Christ. Now, I wish we talked about this more. I think that this is something that we could learn more about. This, this glorious truth of having died with Christ and been raised with Christ. This is actually a major thrust of New Testament doctrine. This is not the only time in the New Testament that these truths are, are presented presented to us. So I'll give you just a few of these. You see the same truth taught in Romans chapter 6. Died with Christ, raised with Christ. Same truth taught in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Died with Christ, lived with Christ. Same exact truths are taught in Ephesians chapter 2. We were once dead. We have been made alive, seated together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So there's something that God wants us to know about this. Something that we're being reminded of over and over again in Scripture. And we have it several times in Colossians itself. And I've already read a few references to you. That we have died with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. In the immediate context of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 verse 3 tells us you died. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 tells us you were raised. So I want you to think about that. I want you to think about having died 
and been raised with Christ. And before we do that, I want to talk to you about, you could call this Christian obedience or gospel-centered sanctification. Okay? Because there's something very, very important about the order that these things are presented to us in Scripture. Okay? The text does not say, seek the things above, raised with Christ. It says the exact opposite. It says, raised with Christ, seek the things above. Okay? There's an order that's pervasive in the New Testament to where the things that we do for Jesus are always preceded by the things that Jesus has done for us. So a simple way to drive this in is in Christianity, the duns come before the do's. Or another way to say that is the indicative comes before the imperative. The duns come before the do's. That's what makes our obedience to the commandments of the New Testament Christian. Okay? We're not Jews. We are Christians. We are standing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The duns come before the do's. Now, that's not just semantics. That's not just some cool little phrase to learn. It's a cool little catchphrase. This is the difference in you walking in moralistic bootstrap religion. Suck it up and keep the commandments. That's will worship. When you walk like that in this world, obedience, that type of obedience, number one, is external only. Number two, it glorifies the flesh of man. Moralistic bootstrap religion. The things that we're talking about is something completely different. This is Spirit-empowered gospel obedience that glorifies the resurrected Christ working through us. That's what's at stake with the do's and the don'ts. Not a cliche. It's the difference in moralism and gospel preaching. The do's always are preceded by don'ts. You have to learn this. If you want some other places in Scripture to drive this in, read the book of Ephesians. Absolutely mind-blowing. Almost 60 commandments, imperatives in the book of Ephesians. Six chapters, split the book in half. Take a guess how many commandments in the first three chapters. One. Guess what it is? Remember. Remember what happened to you in Christ. That's the message of Ephesians. That this is what is yours in Jesus. This is what has been done for you. Know who you are in Christ. Know what has happened to you. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's Christianity. Same thing happens in the book of Romans, 11 chapters of doctrine. This is what is true of you in Jesus. This is what has happened to you in Jesus. Romans chapter 12 verse 1, Therefore, walk this way. Lay your life down as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable to the Lord. It's pervasive in the New Testament. You have to learn this. Okay? You have to know who you are in Christ before you move out in obedience to Christ. And that's what these phrases are reminding us of. Every Christian has been raised with 
Christ. Raised with Christ. We talk about this sometimes. You need to know this stuff of, of what who you are in Jesus, what Jesus has done for you. You need to know this stuff better than any, you know anything else in the universe. So you poke you at 3 o'clock in the morning, you know your phone number, you know your social security number, you know your birthday, you know very critical biographical data about yourself, and you need to know this. Pope, 3 o'clock in the morning, who are you in Jesus Christ? You need to know it like that. It needs to seep in to your mindset that this is my true identity. This is who I really am. Died with Christ and been raised with Christ. I want every believer, I want you fired up about that. I've died with Him. I've been raised with Him. Okay? And at the same time, I actually want you to understand what that means. I'm, I, I, I'm eager for you to understand what does that mean that I died with Christ and that I've been raised with Christ. Now that's not as easy as you might think. And this is worth pondering and considering for a moment. Because the death and resurrection of Jesus are very different than the death and resurrection that we have experienced with Him. Very different. So this is easy for you to misunderstand. Think about this. The death that Christ died was a physical death. And when He died, it, He died as an atoning sacrifice for sin. That's not true of you. You didn't die a physical death and you definitely did not add to atoning for your sin. Your death with Christ was punishment in no way. It was punishment in no form. And then the other truth is that Jesus, when He was resurrected, He's resurrected bodily in a, in a, in a, in a real physical body. Okay, And that's not true of you. At least not yet. It will be true of you. But that's not what this is talking about right now. We have not physically rose from the dead. So what does it mean? What does it mean, brothers and sisters, to have died with Christ and been raised with Him? You need to know this about yourself. This is your true identity. So we'll just ease into this. We can say with confidence that our death with Jesus Christ is not an atonement. Amen? We can say that with confidence. We're not atoning for our sin. And what I think you see in Scripture is here's what we're supposed to take away. Here's what we're supposed to understand when we read this, th these phrases like died with Christ. And you can jot this down. Our death with Christ is not an atonement, it's a deliverance. It's not an atonement. It's a deliverance. It's a transferring to another realm. Our death with Christ liberates us from the dominion of our old masters. We had masters. They reigned over us like tyrants. And the death of Christ broke their dominion in our life. It delivered us from their grip. So I want to give you just a few verses here. Because the New Testament describes this with, the, with some rich variety. Let's start in Romans chapter 6, verse 2. We are told that we died to sin. That's what it means to die with Christ. It means you died to sin. You died to sin. A little later in Romans chapter 6, verse 7, 
It tells us that our death to sin, it was redemptive. Listen, in the sense that when we died to sin, Romans chapter 6 verse 7 says we were set free from sin. Do you catch that? It's liberating from bondage. You had this tyrant and he reigned over you and the Lord Jesus made you like a lifeless corpse. He no longer has dominion over you. You're dead to him. In a sense. You see that? It's redemptive. Let's keep going. Romans chapter 7. Verse 6 tells us the same thing from a different angle. Died to sin in Romans 6. Died to the law in Romans 7. Dead to the law. That's what it means to die with Christ. So, same thing is at play here. Romans 7 verse 6 tells us that when we die to the law, we are, quote, set free from its captivity. Same picture at play. It ruled over us like a tyrant. And Jesus rendered us like a lifeless corpse to that influence. It no longer reigns over us. It no longer has dominion. Galatians chapter 6 verse 14 tells us same truth, slightly different wording. Dead to the law, dead to sin. Galatians 6, crucified to the world. Same things at play. These things were masters that reigned over us and every believer has been liberated from these tyrants. From these tyrants. And so, to have died with Christ is synonymous with saying that you have been set free from your old masters. Do you know that about yourself? Do you know that? Every believer in the room, there is an objective victory that has been won for you in the finished work of Christ. You are free. You have been delivered from dominion. You're free. You're dead to those things. Listen to how it's described vivid, vividly. Romans chapter 6 verse 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Listen. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Praise to His holy name. I was a Christian for three years, maybe four, before I really feel like somebody taught me that. And here's what I mean. The moment I came in, uh, stepped into to the kingdom of God through conversion, through repentance and faith in Christ, I knew in that moment that my sins were forgiven. I knew in that moment that my sins were forgiven. But it would be years down the road before somebody says, no, 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 Dustin. The Lord Jesus did something in your life. You don't have to be enslaved to those tyrants anymore. You are set free from sin. Objective victory has been won for you in Jesus. Delivered from slavery. And I worship the Lord for that. It was a, it was a hiding time bomb waiting to go off in my soul. You need to know that you have died with Christ. And the other side of this is also true, that believers are raised with Christ. Same question, what does this mean? Two verses. Romans chapter 6 tells us that we have been raised, listen, to walk in newness of life. That's why you have been raised. To that end, for that purpose. You couldn't do that before. You have been raised to walk in newness of life. Gets a little sharper in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. You have been made alive to live for Christ. Your resurrection with Him, 
brings you into this blazing focus. You are raised for the sole reason to live for Jesus Christ. Dominion to those old masters broken, brought into a new relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are now alive to God. Every believer in the room, this is your identity. This is your identity in Christ. Now, I might, I might be wrong, but I might be right that there are some Christians in the room that are really struggling with this idea. I see it in God's Word. I see it there. But I sure don't feel dead to sin. In fact, if I were to go re- be really honest with you, I can think of the sin that's working me over pretty good right now. And then the other side of that is also true that there could be some believers in the room and you say, I sure don't feel raised with Christ. I sure don't feel alive to God. I feel far from God. And brothers and sisters, I'm pleading with you to learn this. Okay, This stuff trumps how you feel. It trumps it. You understand that? I'm not belittling in any way or downplaying how you feel is real. But this stuff is more real. These truths, your identity in Jesus Christ, they don't go up and down based on how you feel. They are objectively true in every season of your life. And you have to learn to think about yourself like that. In fact, it gets even stronger. You are commanded by the living God to think about yourself like that. Romans chapter 6, verse 11 says this. So you must Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You have to learn to do this. To reckon yourself having been affected one time forever by the finished work of Christ. There is no moving forward in the Christian life without applying the finished work of Christ. No moving forward. This is who you are This is your identity and you have to learn to make war, to walk in it, to walk in it. And then, and only then, then and only then, are you ready to turn the corner towards commandment keeping. That's the only person who's ready to keep the commandments of God is someone who has been made new in Jesus Christ, applying the finished work of Christ. And so we have two in our passage. And that's the progress. Something happened to Jesus. Something happened to us. And now God demands something of us. Two commandments in the passage. Verse 1, seek the things above. Verse 2, set your mind on things above. Two commandments. They're really one commandment described from two different angles. Seek Christ. Seek the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, these two verses are describing the entire reason why you exist. Seek the Lord Jesus Christ. This is your highest pursuit. This could hang as a banner over your entire life and you would almost miss nothing. So look at the transition here. New creations in Jesus. This is the most natural thing for you to do in this world. Raise with Christ to what? To seek Him. In all things, in everything that you do. To seek the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you're a new creation. That's why you have a new heart. You have it for Him. To seek Him for His glory. For His 
praise. We're going to spend some time unpacking what these commandments mean. And the first thing I want to start with is those things above. Seek the things above. Set your mind on things above. You see it twice, once in verse 1, once in verse 2. And I, and I want to correct maybe any misunderstanding. When we typically think about seeking things, and what do we typically associate with when we, when we say the word above? And I want to get in there and mess with that a little bit. Okay? I'm submitting to you that this is not a commandment to be consumed with geography and a place, a far off place. Okay? And I'm submitting to you this is not a commandment to be consumed with strange tertiary things in the heavenly places. That is the exact mistake that we just read about in Colossians chapter 2. Okay? So what are the things above? What are the things above? And my, and my, what I submit to you is those words are given to us by the Holy Spirit not to make us think about a place, but to make us think about a person. Okay? Listen to John chapter 8, verse 23. Jesus said, You are from below, I am from above. Catch that? What do we know about the things above? We know that's where Jesus is. You are from, from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. What are the things above? They're the things of Jesus Christ. Seek the things above. They're the things of Christ. They're things about the Lord Jesus. And that's exactly why you have this qualifier okay, in the middle of verse 1. The things above, listen, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. This is not a commandment for you to be infatuated with streets of gold, gates of pearls, uh, St. Peter jokes, or whatever, whatever. Football in heaven, all kind of silly stuff. This is not what the commandment is. This is a commandment to be obsessed, infatuated with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is about things where Christ is. About things where Christ is seated in the heavenly places. So the things above are things about a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to get even more specific than that. And I want you to think about this. Because that point could have been made. The things above where Christ is. That's what I want, what I want you to think about where Christ is. But we get this phrase. Seated at the right hand of God. Do you know that this verse would make complete sense without that phrase? Make complete sense. So why do we have it? What does God the Holy Spirit want to teach us with that phrase? Not just where Christ is, but where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And so we're getting this commandment even more specific, even more sharp. Not just things about Jesus in general, but listen. Things about Jesus being seated in the heavenly places. So setting your mind... On a seated Christ is a lot more specific than setting your mind on Christ. And we're going somewhere with this. We are commanded to, to seek the things about a seated Christ. To set our minds on things about a seated Christ. And the fact that He's seated draws our mind into some glorious realities. 
that God has commanded us to pursue with everything that we have. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. After making purification for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does it mean that the Lord Jesus is seated? And that verse tells us that it should draw our mind into this work of salvation that Jesus has accomplished for us. And He accomplished it for us with such perfection. Listen, there's nothing left for Him to do but what? But to sit down. Done. Finished. Do you see that? And so what does it look like? To set your mind on a seated Christ is to flood your mind with the finished work of Christ. To be obsessed with this stuff of what Jesus has done for you. One time forever. For that, for that stuff about the finished work of Christ to dominate everything in your life. Set your mind on a seated Christ. Now, for someone who's been raised with Christ, that ought to be the first impulse for your soul. There's nothing unnatural about it. I don't, I don't want to say that there's no struggle to it. That's not true. But it is, in a sense, like a fish swimming. A resurrected Christian seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. This is fitting for you. This is what your entire life is supposed to be about. Seeking Christ, seeking the finished work of Christ. I want to take this one step further. That phrase, seated at the right hand of God, it also draws us into another stream okay, of biblical doctrine. And what I mean by that is it's a, it's a quote from, from an Old Testament verse that's the most frequently quoted verse in the New Testament. And it's Psalm 110.1. Here's what it says. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110.1. Psalm 110 tells us what happened to Jesus after He was resurrected. Okay, listen. After Jesus was resurrected, He ascended to heaven. And Psalm 110 tells us what happens at that point. That as after Jesus is ascended to heaven, God the Father does two things. Really one, He enthrones Christ. He enthrones the Lord Jesus. He gives Him a name above every name. And He gives Him a throne above every throne. And so the fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God means that Jesus is king over everything in the created realm. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1. Starting in verse 20. God raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Listen. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head of all things to the church. What does it mean to seek 
the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It means to seek the things about the kingship of Jesus Christ. About His sovereign reign over every square inch of the created world. You get this. This is a commandment for you to pursue the reign of Jesus in your life. The reign of King Jesus in every square inch of your life. Set your mind on the King who is sitting at the right hand of God. King over all. Over all. In this age and in the age to come. This is a commandment to seek the things pertaining to the kingship of Christ. Exact same command, little bit different words in two other places in Scripture. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, this is the same thing that's in mind here. It's when Paul says that his desire is to, to know and to seek the power of the resurrected Christ. How much effort... How much time, how much energy are you spending in life? I want to know Him and the power of His resurrection. I want to seek His sovereign reign in my life. I want that Christ who is King over all. I want Him to reign over every square inch of my life. Same commandment. Matthew chapter 6 verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God, the sovereign reign of God, seek it first, first priority, dominate your life, everything in your life is about seeking the reign of Jesus, Jesus reign over me, reign over my job, reign over my marriage, reign over my character, my prayer life, reign over my family, my local church, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, seek the reign of God, so this is very specific. That we are to give our entire life to things pertaining to the finished work of Christ. The work that He has accomplished for us. And His sovereign reign over all the created world. I'll mention just a few things that are to describe this seeking Christ. And the first is just with that word seek. The word seek, what does that mean? The same Greek word that's used in Matthew 13, verse 45, to describe a merchant seeking pearls of great price. So you think about that. How does a treasure hunter go after treasure? Lackadaisical or everything he's got. Okay? So this is a word that's calling us into, don't just do this when you have a little bit of spare time. Do this diligently. Let this stuff consume your life. Seek the things of Christ. Diligently, earnestly. Let it consume your entire life. And think about this. Our pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ is supposed to exceed the zeal with which lost pagans go after pearls, precious pearls. And they go after that with some zeal. There is supposed to be a diligence that marks your pursuit of Jesus in this world. It's the word seek. Seek it diligently. All-consuming pursuit. And I want to say this. When you hear the commandment to seek the Lord, brothers and sisters, fight to see that as a privilege. 
You are being commanded to eat cotton candy, in a sense. You are being commanded to do the sweetest thing in all the universe. To seek the one who satisfies every square inch of your soul. It's your privilege to seek the Lord Jesus Christ with everything that you have. And then consider this. You don't deserve to seek Him. You don't deserve to stand in His presence in the holy place with the Lord Jesus. But yet God calls you into seeking Christ. Seeking Christ. So this is not just a cold duty. This is an all-consuming, pervasive desire that consumes everything in your life and you count it a privilege to seek your Lord. To lose everything in your pursuit of Him. Next we are told to set our minds on the things above. And this shows us that there's some intentionality that's required when we seek the things of Jesus Christ. The text does not say, think about it whenever you happen to have some free time. That's not what it says. It says, set your mind on these things. Arrest your mind and force it here. Okay, That's an intentionalness that you are forcing your entire life to line up with the things of Jesus. Okay, Set your mind on things above. Set your mind on things above. That ought to be at least a quick reminder of how important your thought life is as a Christian. Why in the world would He mention that? Why not just stop and seek? Because He's telling us that our thought life governs that seeking. In other words, every person in here, what do you live for? What do you pursue? What do you seek? You seek what you have set your mind on. And so this is extremely important. You need to give a tremendous amount of attention to your thought life, the things that you think about, the things that dominate your mind in this world. And I'll just say this as a practical encouragement to us. If we're to set our minds, and this has to do with a thought life being dominated by the things of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'll, I'll just say this, and I think you'll amen this all over the room, that we have no chance of keeping this commandment unless our minds are absolutely saturated with the Word of God and what the Word of God has told us about Jesus Christ. No chance of doing that. And so here's what I mean. If right now, you take inventory of yourself, right now, if you were to do what we just said, if you were to intentionally set your mind on things about a, a finished work and a reigning Christ, and you are to prepare it all, but right now, pen to paper, let's see what you got. Are you ready to roll? Are you ready to do battle? No preparation, not spending a, a, a five minute prep time in the Bible, but right now, how ready are you to do that? To obey that commandment, to set your mind, to force your thought life to go in that direction. How ready are you to do that with the Word of God? There's a difference with having an arm's length knowledge of Scripture of, oh I read a verse about that one time, let me grab my concordance. Where's that at? Do you really think you get time? Do you really think that that's how temptation works? That Satan comes to you, Satan and demons, the world of flesh and the devil, and they come to you and they throw you a temptation and you say, time out. Let me get my concordance out. Let me get my iPhone out. Let me look up that verse. Now, I'm not knocking. Do that if you have to. 
Do that if you have to. But what God is calling us to do is to be ready at any moment to force our minds into the things of Jesus Christ. So here's an encouragement. One of my favorite quotes of Warren Wearsby. He says this. This reminds us of how, how real that battle rages in real life. He says, Our Lord did not carry a concordance in the wilderness. And what He meant when He said that was when Satan unleashed on the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus didn't whip out His iPhone and look up a few verses. The Lord Jesus didn't have a scroll in His hand and say, Wait a second, I read that one time. The Lord Jesus said what? It is written. And He took the sword of the Spirit of God and He, and he swung it with all of His might at the evil one. The Lord did not carry a concordance in the wilderness. And that encourages me. So I need to be ready for the battle. I need to be ready in the morning, in the middle of the day, at the end of the day, in the midst of conflict, on good days, on bad days. I need to be ready at any moment to force my mind, Christward, upward, the things above. We have no chance of doing that unless our minds are absolutely saturated with the Word of God. Which is exactly what Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 says. It says this, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Richly. Now say amen to that. I mention one final thing on this point. And it's that this seeking and this setting the mind is in the present tense. What that means is it's a continual, habitual thing. God is not calling you to do this really good for a few days and back off and seek the Lord and back off and seek the Lord and back off. It's to consume your entire life. It is to be your habit, your obsession, the dominant thing in your life to seek the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to give you an example of this in church history of the life of someone who I think is a, a, a beautiful example of a life dominated by the seeking of Christ. So here's the quote. These are the first recorded words of Jonathan Edwards about his future wife named Sarah Edwards. The first thing he wrote about his wife and his books. Listen close. He says, They say there is a young lady in New Haven who is loved of our great God and that there are certain seasons in which our great God comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight. And that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on Him. You could not persuade her to do anything wrong or sinful if you would give her all the world, lest she should offend her great God. She is of wonderful sweetness, calmness, and universal benevolence of mind. Especially... After this great God has manifested Himself to her mind. She will sometimes go about from place to place singing sweetly. And seems to always be full of joy and pleasure. She loves to be alone walking in the fields. And seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. What does that look like? That looks like Colossians chapter 3, 
Seeking the things that are above. Setting your mind on things above. Tremendous example for us. And then consider this. Sarah Edwards was 13 years old when Jonathan Edwards wrote those words about that little girl. You see that? That's beautiful to me. That's tremendously encouraging to me. I'll say two things about that. As a parent, this is an insight. Helps me trust God, believe God, call out to God. That Jesus Christ can consume the mind of a 13 year old girl. Absolutely consume, dominate everything in her life. And we say all over this church, Lord Jesus, do that with every single one of our children. Captivate them with the things of Jesus Christ. Protect them from false conversion and cultural Christianity. Consume them with the things of the Lord Jesus. And the second thing that does is that encourages me as a church member that when God did that in a 13 year old girl's life, that's encouragement for every single one of us that obedience to Colossians 3, this is not just for a few zealous ones in a local church. This is for every single Christian, for your life to be consumed with Christ, to have nothing that stands beside Him, that He holds absolute supremacy in all things. We'll finish this really quick. According to verse 2, your life is to be dominated by the things of heaven, not the things on the earth. Not the things on the earth. Not the things on the earth. Again, there are other places in Scripture that say the same thing with different words. We are supposed to th seek the things of the Spirit, not the things of the flesh. We are supposed to seek the things that are eternal, not the things that are transient. We are supposed to seek the things that are unseen, not the things that are seen. We are supposed to seek the things of God, not the things of man. We are supposed to seek the things above, not the things that are on the earth. So I want to close today by leaving every one of us in a state of diagnosing ourselves. Not the things on the earth. I want every one of us to spend some time meditating on identifying things in our life that are competing with Jesus Christ for supremacy. What is battling for supremacy in your heart Side by side with the Lord Jesus. What things on earth are hindering your pursuit of Christ? Earthly entanglements. May the Lord identify this in all of our hearts. Show them to us, Lord. No matter how painful they are for us to see that, these things are nothing less. Anything that competes with Jesus is an idol. And we want to see those things so that we can repent. That we can repent. So I say this. I'll read a verse. As we gaze in our own hearts. What's competing with Christ in my life. I want to say this. Woe to us. If on the final day. It is revealed about us. That the Lord Jesus does not have supremacy in our hearts and in our minds. Woe to us. 
if it is revealed to us on the final day that we pursued other things with more zeal than we pursued the Lord Jesus Christ. Woe to us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Brothers and sisters, don't get comfortable here. Don't get comfortable in this world. Don't settle into patterns of seeking the things of this world. You don't belong in this world. You've been raised with Christ. Your citizenship is in heaven. You're a sojourner and a pilgrim in this world. Don't get comfortable here. Seek the things above, not the things that are on the earth. Give your entire life to these things. Run after these things to you are exhausted. Exhausted. Give everything that you have to the pursuit of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. God, thank You for Your instruction. You say that the unfolding of Your Word gives light, and we ask for that, Lord. Give us light. Make wise the simple. Lord, drive these words into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit and conform us more and more to the image of Christ. In Jesus' name.